there are a lot of ways in which the making of art is seen as like this is the closest we have to freedom it's like we're we have the freedom to be creative art is is almost weaponized to kind of keep us you know complicit within within capitalism and it's weaponized to sort of give us a brand and the very creativity that um, is so important to the, the freedom dream is also the creativity that is sustaining kind of neoliberal infrastructures that are opposed right, to, to freedom dreams. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Ah, good afternoon, good evening. Um, so before I introduce my very, very, very special guest this afternoon, I wanted to make a few remarks and observations just to let you know that, you know, Freedom Dreams, the book was a family affair, which shouldn't be news to anyone who's read the book. Of course, because my mother is a central character and the source of some of the questions behind the book, um, what we might think of as kind of the politics of love or third eye vision um, and that sort of thing. But my family's influence is, is much bigger. And let me just say a couple of things you should note. One is, of course, the book is dedicated to my sister, Makani Temba activist, writer, poet herself, who taught me how to read and to think. The cover work is the work by um, amazing artists, Deirdre Harris Kelly, Eliza's mother, and my wife at the time, which perfectly represented uh, what the book was about in ways that words could not. Um, my younger sister, Milan Carter-Gilkey, was the resident actor poet in our house and a creative inspiration for me from the time she was in grade school and she continues to be that, an immensely talented writer, poet, uh, you should all know, and there are others. However, if I'm gonna be honest, and I'm trying to be honest, no one has had a greater impact on the book's genesis and evolution than my daughter, Eliza. Okay, so I'm gonna show you an image right there, which hopefully you'll be able to see. Take a see it? Good. Okay, good. Um, so she was there from the very beginning. And, you know, in our efforts, Deirdre, in my efforts to teach her, to widen her horizons, um, uh, you know, we learned a lot along the way. You know, when you try to teach someone, you learn more. We immersed her uh, in the culture, you know, introducing her to key uh, texts and to music before she could even read. Um, Elizao was the one who turned me on to poetry on the eve of the writing of Freedom Dreams. Um, and we'll talk a lot about that uh, later in our conversation. Uh, we took her everywhere, even before she could walk, to concerts, galleries, museums around the world, 
Um, you could see her in Paris, uh, Sculpture Garden. Um, she studied dance for many years. She, was, she studied at Alvin Ailey uh, in New York City. Um, we introduced her to many incredible artists who became friends of ours and whom she thought of as extended family, like Ted Jones, for example, and Laura Cosilia, uh, people like Sonia Sanchez and Seco Sundiata. Uh, and incidentally, uh, we dragged her to Dartmouth, where I gave the lecture that became the rough outline for Freedom Dreams. Um, and in fact, there's Eliza sitting at a desk uh, at the Montgomery House, where I went, where we spent this, the following summer. And that's where I basically wrote much of Freedom Dreams. Uh, at Dartmouth, and we actually fought over that desk space, by the way. Um, anyway, the influence continues and runs deeper than these examples I shared. And as I hope we'll talk about this evening, um, and we'll see it in, in real time, as, as Eliza says, this is a Kelly variety show. Uh, so let me introduce uh, Dr. Eliza Kelly. Dr. Kelly is Assistant Professor of English and African American Studies at Yale University. She earned her PhD from Columbia University, where she worked with Farrah Jasmine Griffin, Brent Hayes Edwards, and Fred Moten on a dissertation that uh, looks at practices of inscription and mark making as modes of spatial production, uh, representation, and reinvention. Uh, she's particularly interested in the ways in which Black communities have intervened in the environment. Uh, built by capitalism, and we made spaces a fugitive praxis out of so-called uninhabitable spaces, spaces that that Black people relegated to. Put another way, she shows how Black art imagines and represents the possibilities of turning enclosure into spaces of Black sociality. And her book will be published by Duke University Press. Her essays have appeared in many places, Antipode, New Inquiry, Cabinet Magazine, and elsewhere. So with that, I welcome the amazing, real Dr. Kelly, Dr. Eliza Kelly. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Kelly. You did, you left out Bob O'Mealy, who was yes. one of my committee members and had a great deal of influence on my dissertation. And also uh, Mabel Wilson was another one of my readers and someone who is a big, big influence on my work. Um, so I just wanted to make sure I yes, yes. I, I apologize for that. I was trying to save time. But of course, yeah. Bob O'Mealy, who, who has been in our life together as the founder of the Center for Jazz Studies and the Jazz Study Group, Mabel Wilson, who um, I was on her dissertation committee at NYU. So it's yes. it's a small world. You can't, I can't affair. forget these people. It's a family affair. Um, it's a family affair. Also, I just wanted to, to say to any viewers uh, to whom you just misrepresented the progress of my book. My book is not coming out anytime soon, so um, we're not selling my book tonight. Tonight we're selling this book, <laughs> Freedom Dreams, A Labor of Love, a book that I, I love so much because, of course, it has this beautiful work by my mom and it's by my dad, so it definitely is uh, an important sort of family object, special enchanted object. Um, for me that that I treasure and I'm very glad that um, more than one copy exists and <laughs> at the library and and buy it and um, there's PDFs and I love this new edition and I was reading 
um, over some of the new sections. So I hope that we can talk a little bit about those new sections and, right. and um, yeah. So we, we will talk about that. And by the way, uh, you should also take responsibility or take credit for uh, that design because when they presented a bunch of different alternatives, you chose it. And I went with it, and it's beautiful. So thank you for that. Um, okay, I know I know you have a lot to say, but I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to jump in with the first question. Okay, we're going to fight. I can already tell. No, no, you're not going to. <laughs> I just this is a I, you know we're going to we're going to just talk. But a question I've I've always wanted to ask you. Actually, I never asked this question. Um, when was the first time you read the book? You know, that's actually a good question. I feel like it's something that I have slowly read in pieces over the course of, of you know, my life, mostly my adult life. Um, I did definitely did not read it in 2001, um, despite, you know, the, 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 the mythologies around me being a, a prodigy and a genius. <laughs> I definitely did not read this book, you know, when it first came out, and um, it actually, for me, was a um, a kind of long and winding path to sort of the family business, I guess. Um, so, you know, I, I was reading my own texts and staying very far away um, from from your work for a long time. So I think that, you know, um, yeah, I've had a, this kind of unique sort of unfolding experience with the book and with the, the writing of a lot of the sort of adults that raised me, um, right. who, who it, it was a very interesting kind of way to grow up is to grow up around and raised by all of these adults who have, you know, made all of this art and all of this work. And, and my experience of them is very much the kind of quotidian and, and the everyday and the way that what happens in their work actually shows up in life, right, in, in everyday life. And so that was so much more my instruction than right. their writing, right? That that for me came after. Um, whereas I think for, for you know, a lot of the kind of outside world, that the, their writing is, is the first sort of encounter with them. And so I think about, you know, people like Fred, people like Farah, mm -hmm. people like you, um, you know, Michaela, AJ, all of these uh, adults, Greg, um, who, you know, had made all of this wonderful work, but I knew sort of the 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 kernels and the seeds of that work and the way that that work sort of was a practice of being and a practice of relation and a practice right. of kind of everyday making and not just that that thing that gets published or screened or or shown. Right. Well, that's so true because you actually um, heard all these people talk talk to each other talk to you. Um, you heard the conversations, you participated in them. Um, and in many ways, though, those are the places where even the richer, more detailed um, yeah. explanations and interrogations take place, you know. Um, one thing that you reminded me of something, um, the first time we actually read part of the book was 2004, because we worked on this project. I don't have a, a picture of it. Um, right. We worked on this really interesting project that uh, Brett Cook Disney, the amazing um, uh, mural artist uh, and you know just an amazing artist, put together a project, and we we did a pamphlet that was based on the excerpt from the book, and it was a, again a family affair. Deirdre did the artwork around it. Uh, you 
redesigned the fonts and drew little pictures on in the side. So you had to be able to you had you had to read it to know what you were doing. Um, and you did no, you read it. You read it. It was basically Yeah, it's true. I think I could have just touched it and through osmosis and through my unconscious absorb. I, I could I could prove it because you drew pictures that actually related to the text, which you know the, it, it was basically from the introduction, um, and and you definitely read it. Uh, so let's go back because one of the things I did want to talk about is you know this period of the late nineties, uh, just before the book was conceived, um, when its themes were gestating, you know these were formative years for you uh, intellectually, politically, I would say. I mean, you grew to love writing and reading and poetry. You were writing poetry. Uh, you actually had your first poem published in 1999 in Anthology of Poetry by Young Americans. Remember that poem? It's actually 97, but... Well, nine, 97. Well, I think you, you're 97, that's the one. Well, um, which meant that you were six when you wrote it. Although you said, in, in a text that you sent me, you said 99 and you said you were in third grade. Okay, I don't really remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I have the book, I just have to pull it out. We'll, um, we'll but, fact checker on it later. Right, right. Either way, whether you were six, seven, or eight, I think you were, you did a lot of, you wrote a lot of poetry at age six to seven. Um, that's pretty impressive, right? But poetry is really, really important. And I, as I said in my introduction, um, poetry became really an anchor for a lot of the arguments in the book. And it wasn't just because, um, uh, because you know, I was reading M.A. Césaire. It was because I was talking to you. You know, we were doing Poetry Circle. I was learning poetry from you. And you were really inspired. I have the text to prove it. On April 25th, 1997, you wrote a little uh, text that was kind of like a diary entry that said that we took you to a poetry reading in Brooklyn and there were three black women who read and uh, one was Tracy Morris. Oh, Can't remember yeah. who the other two. And at the end of it, you said, um, and the last girl looked at my dad because she said a bad word. <laughs> Sounds so talk, talk about that period of time. You know, this is this late 90s, early 2000s. What did, you know, you, you mentioned you were reading, you were reading your tech, you were living your life. What was, what was life like for you? What did you think about? How did you develop? Yeah. Hmm. I, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, you know, on the one hand, I was a child. And so I, I think that my first thought is that there was a certain, um, there's a certain degree to which kind of thinking of that time as a more sort of positive time, maybe a more hopeful time and a simpler time is is also like baked into what it means to sort of be a child and have a childhood. And and it's often a way people see their childhood in, in hindsight as a simpler time before they had to pay bills and all that stuff. Um, so I think that that in some ways that's true, but it did feel like a, a simpler time in the sense that um, it felt like like our terms had been collectively defined in a way that I think now there is less of that. Um, 
and I can explain more of, of what I what I think I mean by that. Um, but it it definitely felt for me um, like a very sort of free and creative time, and and I think that's in part just how I was raised, and again who I was raised around, and um, poetry was a very quotidian thing. It was a very kind of like, it was just one of the ways that you kind of um, did thinking and one of the ways that you did seeing and perception. It was sort of like another kind of sensory activity, right, was to to do poetry or to draw and to make art, right? Because of course, you know, mommy, I, I drew as much as I was writing right. poetry and that was a large part of my, I think, my intellectual um, not that I had that much intellectual, like, stuff going on at, at age nine, but I think, you know, it was, it was part of my thinking, right, was, was to, to sort of make art and to, and to draw, and I, I saw those as part of the same practice, was, you know, playing with words, and playing with lines, and playing with shapes, and playing with colors, and that was kind of the way that, um, you and, and mommy sort of raised me, and, um, you know, it was one of the ways that I learned how to communicate um, and how to sort of organize my my thinking. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to say what was that like because it was sort of just the way that I was um, brought into the world, and it's all that I kind of knew. Um, and you know, I I would also say that that I hear what you're saying about me bringing poetry to you, but let's be clear. You were drawn, you drew, you had your own visual art practice, you were writing poems and music and fiction and all kinds of things before I was born, you know, Um, and, you know, you, you're a musician, right, so you've been making music, so art making in general as a practice that is, that encompasses poetry, I think, has always been a part of you and mommy's life, and a lot of the members of our family. So there wasn't really another way to do things. That was just a part of how you were a person, you know? Right, right. No, that's that's true. But there's, there's nothing like um, trying to, to teach, you know, because we're always, you know, mommy and I, we're always trying to teach, trying to, you know, show you this, do this. I mean, and I think that she would agree with me, like even her painting, um, much like Romy Bearden's painting changed when she when he saw her work making collage. Uh, I'm sure that mommy's painting and thinking changed when she saw what you could do. And I same with me. Um, I wasn't really thinking about uh, poetry as a kind of emancipatory emancipation of language. I mean, I, I read it. I I um, in fact my my willingness my my um, willingness to even write the introduction to the M.A. Cesar volume had a lot to do with things that we were thinking about and talking about, you know, um, very early on. Um, and so in many ways, it's amazing what you learn from your children, especially genius ones like yourself, but just say you're not a genius child. Still, we learn a lot. You know, we learn a lot in the process. And so one of the things that I remember um, that was really formative, well, two things, that politically formative for the book. Um, and I'd love to get your reaction. One is um, that talk I gave at Dartmouth was kind of the foundation for the whole book. That's the talk where I write about it in the introduction, 
uh, where Seiko Sundiata was supposed to show up and he didn't because of the accident. Um, but we came home from that experience and it was the King, the Dr. King holiday weekend. And you had an assignment at school and the assignment was to write about, you know, um, Dr. King's, I have a dream speech, like, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know, like, this is, so, it's so stupid, so boring. No, my business. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is, exactly, you didn't feel connected. And I said, you know what, that's probably, and this is after coming back from Dartmouth, after hearing speeches, hearing me talk about yeah. um, Dr. King in many ways. And I was like, you're right. And if you remember what I did, I, I said, I said, you, you tell your teacher, I'm going to record it. I'm going to give it the tape, why you don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And it was a brilliant argument for why it's not relevant to you. And that turned into a teaching opportunity, which became a classroom assignment where your whole class got together to decide, like, what are the critical political questions of your generation? Mm-hmm. This is fourth grade. And you all came up with what was still relevant today, the question of of gun violence and gun control. Um, And I I mentioned that because this is around the time when, you know, we're outside marching on Fifth Avenue in, I think, of February or March um, and February. And we're protesting the killing of Abdi Diallo. You were there. Yeah. You, You were chanting. So talk about the politics that you, because I know childhood, innocence, all that stuff, but you had a sense of what was right or wrong, what the crisis points were, what the conjuncture was all about. Yeah. But I don't think that at the time I thought of it as politics. I think that, you know, at the time, and, and part of this is, something I think that you get at in in this book right is like you know that that a lot of our politics come from um our lives right and that and that our politics are driven by wanting a better life for mm-hmm. ourselves and others right and so there's a way that I think you know at that time my my you know I'd been raised in this way where um nothing was settled right like like there was no no um this is the the regular world and then i have to spend the rest of my adult life unlearning it right like it was never like that i as a as a child i knew that there were um things wrong that that it was our job to fight those things right and that it was our job to make the world a better place and it was our Mm -hmm. job to sacrifice to do that, right? And that that there that wasn't really up for debate, you know? That was sort of like, that's what it means to be a human. And I saw, you know, most of the people around me who we were in community with, not necessarily like my little classmates at PS116, but like, you know, most of the people we were, we were in community with also had that idea of that's what it means to be um, to be a to be a person, right? Is to be kind of dedicated to realizing a not yet here kind of mm-hmm. um, life, right? And 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 it wasn't it wasn't necessarily cut and dry political kind of identifications. Um, although I think you could go back and you could put some on it, right? I think it really was about like um, people deserve um, safety. 
Mm-hmm. People deserve um, food security. People deserve housing security, right? People, this is just life, right? Um, and that life is not what we want it to be now, right? So that was always very, I, from a child, I've always sort of um, known that and been aware that that was kind of what we had inherited and, and what mm-hmm. our was um, was to kind of um, work towards these these new kinds of relations and um, there was never the assumption that they were already here or that they were here and then we lost them that was never the the idea the idea was always that you know we're fighting for something that's not here yet Um, right and part of our job is to to imagine what that is you know Um, but I actually I know you want to respond but I actually have a question for you so okay. it's related, so I want to make sure that I ask it now. Um, and then if you want to answer, you can. If not, you don't have to. But it, I, I find it really interesting that you started with that question because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was about children and about sort mm-hmm. of learning from, from children. Um, on the one hand, you know, in my, in my very important, very valuable inscription to this book... Here it is for people to see. Sorry, you can never have this copy because it belongs to me. Um, <laughs> you, you, you say, you claim that I was sort of the inspiration for Freedom Dreams, but also that I was its co-author. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of sort of how do we kind of co-author and, and write with children and learn from from them and take them seriously. And um, I also love this part in in the epilogue, which I really want to talk about in the the new epilogue, the new old epilogue, um, where you know you're talking about the sort of maroon poets society that they're kind of bringing into being. And you know by by I think 2044, you say that local governments will have formed where everyone over the age of nine can vote yes. and run for office. And so I just, I mean, I think those two, those two things, right? It's like this, um, this idea of sort of um, this book being co-written with a child, um, and also this idea that you know children should be be running for office and be able to vote and should be kind of you know a part of uh, of of certain kinds of political processes. And and I just want to hear you talk about that more. I mean, you have younger children, right, than me. My siblings are are younger than me, and so you know I'm I'm curious. You know, we both teach undergraduates who are a mm-hmm. type of child in some way, um, and I'm just curious. Yeah, like what is it? what do we need to learn from children right now? And how do we, I I don't think that we're very good at that. Not you and me. We're good. I don't think as (laughs) as a society, we're good at taking children seriously and taking their sort of political views seriously. Um, So yeah, I'd love to just for you to talk a little bit more about that and how we can do that better and um, what kinds of lessons children have for us right now in this moment. Right. Right. Okay, so let's begin with the question of co-authorship, because I was very serious when I wrote that. Um, you know, every each one of those chapters grew, grew out of talks I gave, um, but the thread that runs through them all, but especially the surrealist chapter, um, and especially um, the chapter that deals with Black feminism, um, that so much of what what I learned from you directly about what does it mean to be to seek autonomy 
and independence, both in terms of voice, in terms of body, in terms of space. Um, some people call that, you know, like rebellion, but it's actually not that. It's about, you know, coming to terms with, with a sense of personhood and being part of a community. Like that, that's a striving to be part of, not to be separate, but to be part of as, as someone who's being taken seriously. To watch how you, um, uh, how you try to turn new ideas into art. Like, you know, one of the things I'll never forget is you were two years old and we were in the back of the car and um, I, we were playing a game. I said, can you draw a picture of freedom? And you wrote the word freedom with one E, but you're only like two with two and a half. And, and then you drew a picture of, of a person, like a leg, a stick figure with a leg and a chain around the, the leg and is breaking the chain. Now, we, you know, granted, I was making you listen to Ice Cube, <laughs> which wasn't helpful. But yeah, that part. Because <laughs> I was writing about it. But the, but the point is that to watch you find language, right, frees me up to try to find language, either the visual language, descriptive language, and analytical language, to try to bring light to concepts that actually are probably not as complicated as you make them seem, yeah. you know? Um, and freedom, you taught me, remember, freedom is a process, it's the act. It's not the end game, you know? So there's that co that's just one example. I mean, some co-authorship is, is sitting with you and, and reading Black No More, George Schuyler's book, you know, which, you know, people say, oh, it's just, it's like, you know, she's too young to listen to that book. But we had a ball, we had a blast talking about it. And here is a kind of utopian turned to dystopian kind of future. And to hear your opinions, your thoughts about that, what it meant, got me thinking differently about a lot of things. Uh, poetry Circle, you know, writing poetry with you. Um, you know, help me to be a better writer. You're still helping me to be a better writer because you write so beautifully and I'm trying to figure that out. Um, to go back to the question of, of children, generally speaking, um, I learned so much of this from before um, or around the time you're very, very young, but um, my colleague who you remember as also one of your aunties, Elsa Barkley Brown, wrote some amazing essays about reconstruction and one of the things she wrote an essay i think it's called catch the vision of freedom and she described uh the franchise during reconstruction as family owned as not something that's necessarily patriarchal that's owned by a patriarch but the way that uh that women um and children in these new um, Friedman-type families, these new family reformations, um, which are now finally being recognized by, uh, by law through the 14th Amendment, they show up to these, these um, uh, open-air Republican conventions together, whole families. They show up to the polls together. And the idea is that if the, if the male of the household is going to uh, cast a vote. The vote has to be decided ahead of time 
and he's doing the work of the family. The fact that you have seven, eight, nine-year-old kids at these open-air con- uh, meetings, and they say, take a, take a vote by voice, and they're like, nay, yeah. And then, and then the, the leading Republicans are like, no, you, the kids can't say that. And if you come out of slavery, it's like, why not? Why not? You come out of a situation where uh, children are responsible for making surplus value, right? And for caring for others to, to do reproductive labor. And they don't have a right to vote, a right of a say-so, you know? And so all that I learned sort of as a historian, as a friend and colleague of Elsa and all the black women historians who trained me and taught me, it's a big long list, you know? Then when you were in school, we, you know, you dealt with certain kinds of challenges that people against you, you know, because of racism. And we all had, as a family, had to come to terms and make, take a stand. And the one thing that we, mommy and I both were always careful about, we're not making decisions over your head, making decisions with you. And that's how you parent, you know? Um, and, and I have to say, finally, you know, if someone like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene can have the power to determine policy in Washington, D.C., then any six-year-old should be able to like run for Congress. I'm just saying. And because yeah. the six-year-olds are way smarter. It's, it's funny because um, my I, I just saw this very funny video um, of these white kids who are responding to the Dr. King holiday. And this one white boy, he couldn't have been like six years, he might've been six years old, might've been five. And he was very emotional. And he says, um, his mother shows a picture of Dr. King. Who's that? And he says, uh, the whites killed him. The whites killed him. He kept saying, the whites killed him. And it's so sad. And I'm so mad. And it's going to be payback. <laughs> and, his mo- and the mother says, well, I hate to tell you, but you're also white. And he stopped for a second. And he said, well, I'm not that kind of white. Now, people were laughing like this is sort of like so hilarious and this kid doesn't know, but that child expressed a sophistication that's greater than all these people who are fighting critical race here. Because what his position was, whiteness is not necessarily my skin. It is an ideology. And that's not mine. I disidentify with it. But here's this little six-year-old kid, a white kid, disidentifying with whiteness and saying the whites killed Dr. King, meaning that the wave of power killed him. And this is tragedy and this is payback and I'm gonna be part of that payback. And his mother's steadily saying, no, no, but you're white too. He's like, I'm not that kind of white. That's not me. Those are not my people. So all I'm saying is that no one, he didn't have to read a book to know that. Yeah. Just like you didn't have to read a bunch of books to figure out certain things because you're immersed in a life in a world where, as you say, it's quotidian, it's every day, but it's also people who are trying to practice in their speech, in their language, in their um, activities and actions, in their responses, a way to be ethical in this world, you know? And so I don't think it's an accident that, and I'm gonna turn the question on you, 
that you ended up, um, you know, writing a dissertation, doing research on the way that people have tried to express themselves through mark making and try to turn the worst of circumstances into a way to be together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you started that in as an, you started that in high school, really. Um, thinking about rooftops, you you wrote about it in, as as an undergrad, and then you went on to you you read about it in Tar Beach, you know, one of the children's books that we used to read to you, which has had a profound shape on your work. Can you talk about your work and talk about what you're trying to do uh, with uh, your writing? If I have to. I no, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I... That's a very general question. Can I just talk about my work and what I'm trying to do? I mean, I'm... I'm I'm trying to do a lot of things. Um, I think mostly I'm trying to do some justice to the kinds of, um, you know, creative and 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 productive and and sort of transformative work that I saw happening around me all my life as a child. Um, and you know, I think Tar Beach is a is a great example. It's something that, um, you know, and and Faith Ringgold actually talks a lot about why she writes for children and the sort of um, political um, sort of um, acuity and sensibility that children have um, that that we need to listen to and learn from. And so um, it makes sense that she spent a lot of time, you know, writing for children and and taking children seriously um so can, and, can you share what the book's about for the people oh, who don't know and tar beach is a um it's a picture book it's it's a sort of multi-genre sort of um, picture book that is inspired by um faith ringled story quilts um a, a series in particular called woman on the bridge and um the story quilt that many people are very familiar with which is Tar Beach, and it is sort of Tar Beach is a term to describe um, the the rooftop. So in New York City or lots of cities where there are flat rooftops and people go up there and they eat and they, you know, take naps and they look at the stars and they make community and um, and they use it as a sort of extension of um, intimate social space. Mm-hmm. Um, and use it as a kind of commons, which is what I've I've you know argued a little bit in my in my dissertation. Um, and so you know, Tar Beach not only kind of um, thinks about this space as a as a sort of social and and intimate um, and black space. I think in on, in Tar Beach in particular, um, but it also works as this kind of um, work of cultural preservation, right? It, it preserves and sort of archives um, this kind of activity, right? Which doesn't usually um, get sort of um, inducted into the, the annals of sort of like spatial representation. Um, it's not on a map, right? It's not in the city records. It's not a sort of officially um, zoned, right? Type of space. Um, it's a space that people create informally. Um, and so, a book like Tar Beach and, or a quilt, right, which, and both the book and the quilt sort of combine 
mediums and combine art forms. So the story quilts are painted, but they also have writing on them, right? Their stories um, and their quilts, right? And then the book also has sort of photographs of the, the fabric and of the quilts. And it also has painting and it has words. It has, you know, the story itself. Um, and it's a children's book, but it's a children's book for all ages. Um, mm -hmm which I think is is really important to part of the message, which is that like, you know, you can, if you can write for children, you can write for everybody, you know? Right. Um, and so children should should be who we're writing for and who we're working for and who we're, we're making this world better for. And so we should be sort of listening to them and, and centering them and centering their visions. Um, and Tar Beach is a space that I think, you know, it's, it's, partially memoir so it's Faith Ringgold thinking about her childhood mm -hmm. and sort of the visions and and the dreams literally right that she had as a child when she would go out on Tar Beach with her little brother and um she would fly right she would literally fly around I mean not literally but in her dream right she would mm -hmm. fly um fly around New York right and she would fly over the George Washington Bridge and she would fly around Harlem and she would, you know, in this act of flying, right, sort of reclaim the, the territory of the city in a way that sort of uh, refused um, possessive and, and acquisitive and kind of capitalist relations, right? It was this other kind of possession, right, the kind of possession of, of, um, of stewardship and of care, and of love and redistribution, right? She was reclaiming the city for um, for her family, for her community, right? Um, so it's a kind of a response to dispossession, I think. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, I just got away with talking about Faith Ringgold instead of my work, but Faith Ringgold's work is really, really important to my work. And it's in that spirit that I try to do my work. And so I guess... What I'm trying to do with my writing is what I think Faith Ringgold's family is trying to do with the rooftop and what I think Faith Ringgold is trying to do for her, you know, children of all ages, um, which is an ambitious goal. But, you know, I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's searching for new kinds of maps, different kinds of instructions different kinds of plans different things to sketch on and and annotate and and um and so i'm trying to also just just assemble things and present right. them together and let them speak to to each other and and hopefully open up some of those itineraries and open up some of those maps if you're enjoying the haymarket live series you'll also be interested in a new book from haymarket angela davis an autobiography featuring a substantial new introduction by the author angela davis an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle angela davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation feminist queer and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years first published and edited by tony morrison in 1974 angela davis an autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, 
to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography at haymarketbooks.org. Right, and, 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 and actually also imagining different ways, as you said several times in our conversation, of being together. Uh, better ships than citizenship include friendship, relationship, or even a private ship. That's everyone's favorite quote from the new edition of Freedom Dreams. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about about that? I mean, I, um, I, of course, the the quote comes from an, an interview, a conversation you have with Brian Kamazi uh, from South Africa, and it really encapsulates both what I was trying to do with Freedom Dreams in terms of rethinking social relationships. Uh, even beyond, even beyond the the boundaries that we think of as blackness, right? Yeah. Um, but also, it beautifully encapsulates everything that you have been doing in your own work. Um, why it is that you are the one to introduce me to uh, really think about mutual aid as as political um, project and and all this stuff. So can you, you know, just to go back to that. Terrific quote, which is my favorite quote, by the way, um, especially where you end with the power of the love letter uh, is that it is written without the guarantee of a response, which has been um, a major fight I've had with a lot of uh, my comrades who basically still see um, uh, our, our political um, uh, activities in terms of models of exchange, yeah. you know, that somehow there has to be some reciprocity, and if not, we're not going to even build alliances or coalitions. So can you talk a little bit about that quote? Yeah, that yeah. Conversation? I think um, just on that last point you just made, you know, it, it speaks a lot to what you're writing about about winning, right, in the new in the new forward. And this kind of like shifting the scale, shifting the kind of attention and shifting the tools and the materials, right? When we when we move away from thinking about winning, right, or thinking about endpoint or thinking about incorporation or thinking about a seat at the table. I was just teaching Langston Hughes, you know, earlier to my class, right? Thinking about this, you know, this desire to be at the table, to be accepted, right? To win, right? To put our new regime in place, right? <laughs> that that's not actually the point, right? And so I think that that's kind of what I was thinking about in terms of of the love letter, right? It's and and the love letter is something that we send out and we keep sending out as long as we're not, you know, being a stalker. But you know, we send it out and it's not meant to. It's not asking for something, right? It's 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 a poem in in some way, right? It's a it's a gift. It's a you know, it's a it's a gift. It's, it's not asking to be entered into that kind of relation. It's something that we just keep doing. We just mm -hmm. keep waking up and doing it, you know, and um, even if that means like the nasty work of like repeating ourselves or, you know, having to like 
educate new generations of people who don't know all of the, you know these things who haven't experienced the kind of um the kind of um things or or done the reading or or whatever right that, that there's this kind of um commitment that we make to just continuing to do it every day right and that so that was part of that second part um yeah but the the ship you know you get on the ship with other people. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I really like, I loved reading this, the new, the new, the old new epilogue. Right? Mm -hmm. Because, about that. yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll ask my question at the end of, of what I'm about to say, which is, you know, I think what the Maroon poets, right, the Maroon poets are, are shipbuilding, right? Like they're on a ship together. Um, and I I like the, the ship only, you know, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be a ship, right? I think I like the ship as a formation because it means that we don't have to all come and bring the same things, right? We don't have to all come and be the same, right? Um, that we come with what we come with and we contribute what we contribute. Um, and so I think that it, it does speak to mutual aid in a nice way in, in that sense, in terms of thinking about how mutual aid is, is able to sort of forego this requirement of, of equality or reciprocity, mm -hmm. right? And actually think about, about difference and thinking and thinking about different kinds of vulnerability, right? And how it is our job, right, to give up for the person who, who needs, right? And that that's actually, that person is a part of us. So when we do that, when we give up, right, something, we're actually, we're actually, you know, restoring, right? We're actually um, um, giving a gift to, to ourselves as well. So, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I like that formation of gathering together somewhere and navigating, right? And navigating somewhere else setting sail and and sort of we don't have to stay here and do things like this right like we can also um make something together um so that's why i i thought i i guess in that way um about about the ship and um yeah and about friendship i i again i i like friendship because it doesn't require sameness right it doesn't require um, that all of our needs and our grievances be the same for us to be in solidarity um, and that the world we desire can be like a world that um, serves all of us, I guess. Um, and it's romantic, right? That's, that's the other part. It's like, it's romantic, right? The, the love letter is romantic um, and, and, it, and it should be. It should be romantic, right? It should be that it's something that's based around love and, and, and driven by love and that is about a kind of, um, um, yeah, love rather than anger or fear or disappointment, right. I think. And you're probably uh, also thinking about all levels of love. Like I think about, um, yeah. you know, like the, the origins of, the, the multiple origins of, of the hashtag Black Lives Matter 
and one is a love letter to to black people, mm-hmm. and that's a love letter that is, um, you know, written, you know, uh, you know, by um, Patrice Cullors and Lisa uh, Lisa Garza and others. I mean, uh, this is a, a letter that, like many letters that are love letters to to a people, yeah. to community. Uh, is really based on this concept of agape, which is that there's no outside, you know, that we're not, this is not based on the concept of exclusion or enemy, but there's no distinction between friend and enemy. Um, And that's something that's also a kind of, so you got eros, you got um, agape, um, and, you know, in friendship itself as a form of love. Uh, And hopefully um, we can move in that direction. you know, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm known for being really optimistic, and then yet at the same time, as you were talking about the love letter, I kept thinking of um, Chat GP and AI being producing all these <laughs> love letters. <laughs> on the one hand, and on the other hand, the kind of, uh, you know, what Dr. King talked about, a kind of selfishness that has pervaded our culture. Yeah. Um, where it's even beyond um, reciprocity. It's how do you monetize? How do you monetize movement? How do you monetize um, coalition? How do you, I mean, that's the thing that, that's, that's very scary and disturbing to me. And especially when, you know, uh, there's a kind of culture that really celebrates uh, even more than ever. I feel like maybe I'm just old. Mm-hmm. But material, material wealth, uh, and not even wealth, but things that are, that reflect wealth, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think just in terms of thinking about differences between two thousand one and now, right? Is is mm-hmm. I think um, in addition to sort of what the internet has has wrought, right? I think um, there's a particular brand, and I pun intended, although it's not that funny, right, of individualism that is extremely kind of insidious that actually is based on the kind of use and abuse of radical language, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of, you know, self-care and boundaries and, you know, all this, you know, right? Yeah, what Femi talks about elite capture. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I think, like, that has, you know, kind of, that's a that's a major, I think, distinction for us when we're thinking about what it means to kind of um, think about freedom dreams now in in 2023. I almost said two in 2023, right? It's like that that has made these kinds of um, efforts to think about poetry and think about art very different because you know. Ca- the, the capture and the extraction of art, right, is is even more kind of um, um, insidious. And, and so I think it's something that we also need to, to um, really be specific and be precise about, right? Because, you know, I think that, like, there are a lot of ways in which the making of art is seen as like this is the closest we have to freedom. It's like we're we have the freedom to be creative, right? And mm-hmm. and 
you know, art is is almost weaponized to kind of keep us, you know, complicit within within capitalism, and it's weaponized to sort of give us a brand, and and it becomes, you know, weaponized to sort of um, allow corporations to say that they, you know, care about Black life, and and so there's right. all different ways that actually um, the very creativity that um, is so important to, you know. The, the freedom dream is also the creativity that is sustaining kind of neoliberal infrastructures um, that that are 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 opposed right to to freedom dreams. So yes, my question is sort of related to that, and it's it's about the the epilogue, um, which I love obviously. But I think you know it's it's a piece of speculative fiction. Would you would you call it that? I mean, it's it's a dream, right? But it's also a kind of dream that is speculative fiction, right? That is literally thinking about um, and speculating upon a, a kind of um, imagined future, and um, and also I think it's one of those dreams that we have where we are part of its articulation, right? Where part of the dream is to hold the things that we want, right? Mm-hmm. And to be able to to give us a kind of roadmap and a and a, a kind of um, a place to uh, a, a sort of like touchstone, right? It, it it keeps those those things that you remind yourself you're working towards, right? This is this is the kind of utopian, right? Um, um, speculative world. So um, yeah, I, I really love that. I also love that after you kind of give us this speculative fiction, you give us these real examples, right, of sort of maroon poetry in action, um, which which I love. And, and you say, I think you say this in the forward, that um, Freedom Dreams is a product of your relationships to activists and artists, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this is something that that I think is really important is that it's not just that like freedom dreams is about poetry right it's that it's about the scene between right it's it's about where art sort of comes in to to sort of um meet organizing and building and writing and doing research, right? Um, so when art is allowed to sort of transform these other activities and be a part of them. Um, so there's there's this kind of thing about, I think, interdisciplinarity or anti-disciplinarity um, that seems really important. Uh, and yeah, I guess it, with those conditions kind of considered, I would ask the most broad, basic, and difficult question possible, which is, of course, what are some of the utilities right now um, of art making, right? Given this kind of atmosphere of sort of intense absorption and sort of co-optation and, and extraction around art, um, and especially around Black art. And um, obviously, there's there's histories of this, and, and less so with visual art, actually. That's kind of catching up now, right? But all the other kinds of forms of creativity that you could imagine right is is kind of um it's the multi-million dollar industry so mm-hmm. right so that's a that's a great question um before i answer the question i'm just going to tell the audience uh that now is the time if you have questions thoughts um for either one of us now's the time to put it in the chat uh you know or wherever um john will explain where we'll go 
Um, and then we could, because we have about 15 minutes before we end. So this is a good time to prepare those questions. Um, that's a really hard question. And it's a question, it's hard because, um, you know, I, I feel like we've been in such a state of emergency that even the artist friends of mine have kind of not abandoned art, but they've sort of turned to the immediate sort of work of just organizing and responding to states of emergency. But let me just give a couple of examples. There's one example, um, which to me is amazing, art making, uh, culture making, and community making. And I could have, I should have written about it in the, the last section of Freedom Dreams, but I didn't have the space. But that is um, much like what's happening in Detroit, which is really led by artists when you look at it, artists and activists. Uh, in Chicago, there's the Sweetwater Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, founded and led by this amazing, amazing brother, Emmanuel Pratt. Uh, and we've started working together on some things. And what he and the young people around him and his crew has been, have been able to do is to turn many, many blocks in the heart of Chicago into uh, not just an urban farm, but where they, they, he's an architect. They use architecture uh, to build these dwellings, to house people, to have meeting spaces, to, to teach people how to, young people how to cultivate. Um, and in, in, like since 2009, in a community, we're all around them. If you read the press, all you see are stories about black people killing black people. You know, and that's art making because there are certain methods of building that, you know, these are not prefab structures, you know, teaching these kids, these young people and older people as well, how to put together wood in ways that lock into place and build up and protect and, and, and secure people's lives, um, how to grow food in the middle of the city is itself an art, you know? Um, agriculture is a form of art, you know? It's agri-art, right? Um, and so I, I see those kinds of practices. And I see also, uh, you know, to, to me, those practices are important because for so long, and I, I include myself, um, when I've written about art, it's been like seeking political meaning in representation. But that's not all there is, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it's the process of production sometimes, uh, especially when it's made collectively, uh, when it, you know, I think about uh, Dawood Bay, you know, someone that you, you met when you were very, very young, we were looking around, I think you met Dawood, you must have been, you had to have been like three years old because we were checking out New Haven and the fact that he would give these young people cameras and say, let's see your world, show me your world, um, and, and cumulatively produces a different way of understanding um, society, geography, space, the built environment, and the interiority of people's lives by giving them the camera, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of amazing things that are being done but that's not the kind of thing that you will necessarily find uh, in uh, the Metropolitan Museum or the Whitney or whatever. 
some of you might find. And of course, there's um, our friend who you've written so eloquently about, um, Lauren Halsey, here in LA, uh, who is doing much the same. You know, Lauren's an architect, Lauren builds things, takes the spaces that, uh, that she grew up in, in South LA, and, and sees it as a kind of new map of liberation, you know? Uh, and, and like I said, builds things. I find it so interesting that the two artists that you mention are are architects. And I won't say that that's my influence, but I will say. (laughs) Of course it's your influence. (laughs) No, but, but I, but I will say that I think, I think it resonates so much with this, this moment of the maroon poets, right? Lifting the poetry off the page and where do they put it on the walls? Right. They put it on the walls. They cover, you know, the the, the city with it. And um, and so I think that that's part of what I've been interested in in my own work is like this thing called building. Right. This thing where like I don't know if you've ever been in an architecture review, but it's like, you know, students basically they have this site or this building or whatever. And their job is to like do some research read some things, right? Use sketch, draw, use, you know, CAD or whatever computer program and transform this space, mm-hmm. right? And literally kind of render it, imagine it, right? Put it down, right? And of course their profession is constrained by lots of sort of, you know, um, kind of market relations and sort of what they're supposed to be being trained for and, and you know, kind of settler colonial and capitalist epistemologies, right? They're, they're restricted in a lot of ways. But that practice, that dedicated sort of formalized, regular sit down, look at this space, tell me what you want to be here, right? Like, I feel like we need more of that in in our other kinds of kinds of fields, and we need more um, interdisciplinary or sort of antidisciplinary, right? Planning, right? Sketching, drawing, planning, and so I I I agree with you that that sort of the people who have this kind of architectural sensibility or they're interested in transforming space often are thinking in these really kind of holistic and radical ways about transformation mm-hmm. and about the capacity of art, right? And poetry and movement, right? And music to be spatially transformational, right? And how mm-hmm. that kind of intervention is in actually intervening with the kind of things that we call structural, right? The things right. we call structural are deeply connected. Um, the, the things we call ideological are deeply connected to the sort of spatiality that we live with and accept, right? Or or resist and try to recreate and try to re, um, you know, try to try to sort of reimagine. So um, yeah, so I, I think we're getting some questions. So I right. won't talk too much more. Um, but exactly. yes, Lauren is brilliant, and Lauren is about that life. So everyone right. don't know her work, you really need to know it. Um, exactly, exactly. Before I read this question, um, just in response, yes, just to, to, for people who don't know, I I do talk about Lauren briefly in um, in the new introduction, and you have written a beautiful catalog essay for her show, which I think is coming out very soon. Um, but Lauren also, you know, walks the talk in that she created some of everything uh, which became a kind of more than mutual aid, which she was providing, you know, 
uh, fresh organic produce for people living in the projects in South LA, um, turning her space into a space to help people during the pandemic. Um, and so that's that's what it means about. And so much of what you've just talked about is about reclaiming space. Um, I think about Shamel Bell, my, my student who does uh, dance activism uh, and how much that's about reclaiming space. But of course, how do you reclaim space when space is commodified? And yeah. this has been the biggest challenge, whether it's Lauren, whether it's uh, Emmanuel Pratt, whether it's in Detroit, all those artists and you know where they have to try to find land Mm-hmm. And land is something which is, you know, there's ways to get it, but mostly you have to pay. Okay, so this is from... Um, I want to uh, say something else, but I'll wait because we, we should answer questions. Oh, yeah, this is just, just this is a, a, a quick question I think you can answer by Sith Lord Prince. Um, what okay. do you both think about kinship as a framework? One of the biggest takeaways from Cedric Robinson's Terms of Order is to build epistemologies of kinship. So your thoughts? Take it away. Well, you you answered the question in your response. Age before beauty. (laughs) No, I'm saying your your whole conversation about um, citizenship and friendship and things that are not authorized by the state. Because that's part, terms of orders, like how do you, you know, you have forms of of social relations that are not authorized by the state. You say this you know, in that beautiful quote. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to talk too much about that quote, because I feel like it it says the things that I think. Um, right. and, I, and I hesitate to sort of overwork it. And, and um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's what we've been talking about this whole time. And in, in some way, right, we started there, I think we started with this idea of, of kinship and, and mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something really important. I mean, at least the way that I was raised to think about kin and and how you, you know, what your responsibilities and your obligations are to kin um, make it such that, like, I I do believe that that it's a it's a model that should be carried outwards. Right. And, And that there's a way that, you know, we should be thinking about not just everybody, but the earth too as our kin right. and exactly and a lot you know a lot to learn and and i think like what changes when we when we go from thinking of things as our possessions to thinking of things as our kin um what obligations do we now have to them so that's what i think exactly and that's what cedric basically says in terms of what he talks about the the millipede metaphor you know um, which is key to the epistemologies of kinship. Um, the other question, and I got to correct the questioner. Uh, the question says, Eliza corrected Robin's assertion that her book is out soon. <laughs> I never said it was out soon. My exact <laughs> words were, her book will be published by Duke University Press, period. So I'm but, sorry, Eliza. I, I never said it was out soon. Anyway, okay. so here's the question. Can she talk more about what it will cover? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I'm going to be doing my own promotion where I hold up my book on on Haymarket <laughs> Skype. I'm like, I'm a book. You can learn all the secrets. Um, but I can say pretty, pretty briefly, uh, my book will be about mark making and thinking about sort of mark making practices as 
um, modes of spatial intervention. And um, I am a literary scholar, so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the intersections between mark making and writing practices. Um, and actually, one of the things that I, I wanted to say to your last um, point, Dad, Dr. Kelly, Dad, <laughs> was, you know, this idea of art making also being about the making and not just the mm -hmm. problem. Right, I think is is one of the things that um, I think about a lot in my book because um, you know I, I I was thinking about Paradise about Toni Morrison's novel Paradise and you know this this practice of mark making that happens in the cellar of the convent right which is this kind of you know way station that's just outside of this all black town called Ruby Oklahoma and um, the way station is full of wayward women right the wayward women who have been sort of pushed to the edge of this town um, and they they sort of make um, a, a collective life right in this in this convent this former convent that sort of gets repurposed and so one of the mark making practices that I'm interested in the book um, is the mark making that they do in the cellar, right? Which is sort of inspired by sort of candomblé and it's inspired by a lot of sort of spiritual practices, mm -hmm. but basically by a bunch of chalk and they trace, they do tracings of themselves and then they draw on those tracings, right? And the point is not to make these be this beautiful art on the floor, right? The point is to exercise right and I mean I don't mean exercise I mean exercise right exercise right. exercise right um, right and so it's in the act of making these marks and making them on the floor right in this space in the cellar in the repurposed sort of space um that they're able to kind of um produce um produce new possibility for themselves a new possibility for this sort of collective, right? This wayward collective. Um, and they do it through through this kind of ritual mark making, right? And so I'm interested in sort of drawing and, and carving and writing um, and how these practices can be ways for, um, you know, um, dispossessed people, right? To sort of write back against the spaces that have been imposed upon the earth and the kinds of enclosures and borders, right? That have been drawn over the earth. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a little bit of what I'll, I'll be writing about and writing a lot about black geographies and um, writing about the intersections between fiction and poetry and visual art. So I'm thinking a lot about kind of the sort of intersections and, and seams and assemblages that form um, between between media. So yeah, I hope that was a good answer. That's a great answer. And the one thing I can say, I can vouch for the fact that having read the dissertation and read various iterations of articles and parts of what become the book, uh, I know it is just brilliant and it may not come out tomorrow, but it will be out and it's going to change uh, a lot of what we already think. It's going to change the way we think and see and understand. So, so all I, that's all I have to say. So having said that, I know our time is up. Um, it was just a perfect way to end, you know, listening to and preparing us for, uh, for the future. And I have to say, I just want to publicly thank you again for really making this book, Freedom Dreams, possible, for making me the scholar I am. 
oh. uh, more than anyone for being the best teacher I've ever had, you know, basically equal to my mother, your grandmother, um, and for being such a great friend. I love you, Eliza. Oh, thank you. I love you too. And I feel all the same ways about you. And I think, you know, you have been my greatest teacher, but also I would say, you know, you made me a human. So thanks for bringing <laughs> me into the world. And, um, and clearly it should be clear now to the audience that your work has shaped mine in, in so many ways. And I hope to, you know, not replicate your work or even, you know, rise to the occasion, which I don't think I can do, but I hope to sort of um, carry on one sort of tributary and, and, and do a little bit of my own kind of meandering um, coming from, from that great, that great river. <laughs> I'm sorry, you, you, you created an ocean. I, you know, I'm still a stream and we both have to thank Deirdre Harris Kelly for, yes. for making both she, of us. She's so thank you, Deirdre. I hope, I hope she anyway. is. Shout okay, out to so, mom. Thanks for watching. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thanks for watching. And we have one more episode coming up. Look for that. Uh, and again, thank you, Haymarket, you know, everybody. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.